What do you think of it? Your bula. I think it's sort of heavy on sugar, light on cinnamon, when I prefer a bit more of a sort of cinnamony taste. Oh. In fact, not even sure there is any cinnamon on that, are you? It's hard to tell, isn't Mm. it? (laughs) What do you think of my eye makeup? It's slightly different than usual, bearing in mind I'm still in the puffy phase of the day. The way you describe it is as if, you know, when people have very extreme reactions to bee stings. Yeah. The way you describe it is as if your face looks like that first thing in the morning. We were both, like, so we're both people with angles and we talk about that. Don't you think everyone has angles? But you don't see the unfiltered pictures because all people ever put up online or in magazines or whatever are the good ones. No, I think that we're extreme. Both of us. And I think our son has it as well. So what I was trying to illustrate by mentioning something like that is just that I don't think it's like this thing I that is unique to me. I think some people... I beg your pardon. I've got a thing going on. <laughs> what thing have you got going on? Well, all of my side effects. So you had the AstraZeneca vaccine. AstraZeneca on Friday. And you've not been feeling great. Is it real or are you talking about this in case the producer of Mock the Week is listening and when they hear that you're having AstraZeneca side effects, they'll think you're younger oh, than you are? Oh, that's funny. But an I- ITV2 commissioner could hear it and think, oh, maybe she is in our demographic after all. Gross. No. <laughs> I think I'm just going to stop saying how old I am now. I've decided. Then was- do I get to subtract? You don't want to look rough for your age. I think if it wasn't for the fact that I'd gone as grey as I have, I could pass for my 30s. Yeah, your face is done great. Your hair looks great too. It's just, it is really great. It's old man's hair now. Yeah. When it's very freshly washed, it can have a bounce that isn't ideal, I think, in that that department. (laughs) Anyway, the point is, is that I've been having these really weird pains. Are you writing down how boring this is? No, 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 no. no. All I'm saying is I could tune into a podcast for the first time and if someone was talking about the combined side effects of an antibiotic and their vaccine, I'd be like... (laughs) Sign me up to this shit. <laughs> Maybe we should pivot away from the Beatles and just more towards about side effects. Just more towards symptoms you're experiencing on a, any given day. <gasps> yes, Sarah's symptoms. That's that would be a good podcast. Yeah, that's a pretty good title. I think a good podcast would be you, a psychologist and a doctor. Oh my god! <laughs> and you would bring them your symptoms. The psychologist would ask about other things going on in your life at the time, like your levels of anxiety. Uh, the the doctor had asked lots of medical questions. Then at the end, they'd have to make a judgment whether it was psychosomatic or not. Oh my god! Wait, if the what? If the, if the, if, so my mom's not a psychiatrist, but she could be the therapist, and we just have to think of a doctor. Do we know any doctors? Is there anybody from our GP that you could? Hello, Doctor Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I had a wonderful conversation with a Dr. Addy at the GP recently. I loved him. I, I think, based on a few things, I think I've worn him a little thin, but um, not worn, worn him out, not worn him thin. And, and I genuinely feel that a podcast that was me and my mother and a doctor could be one of the funniest things that's ever happened. Given the previous five minutes of conversation that then culminated with you wearing a doctor out, how aware are you of the ways in which you're turning into your mother? Oh, yeah, I think I'm pretty aware. Because <laughs> you think all my symptoms, all my side effects of this are... All I'm saying is when you think about the fact that you are now walking obsessively and often trying to go beat 20,000 steps a day, you're having these prolonged interactions with no, doctors. No, the, the 20,000 steps a day, first of all, I You're commenting I on the angles that our son's face has. Do you think that... There's more of your mum there than you, you I think the you think. angles that my son's face have is a yes. I think you can't 
put all these things together. The trampoline? No, that's all. First of all, I've stopped trampolining. <laughs> Secondly, I'm at a heavier weight than I've ever been in my entire life. I don't believe that. And I have a public facing job and I'm about to get back on stage and I want to feel good and look youthful. I and know, so I I'm, know, I know, I know. I want to do shit to my face mm. and like lose five pounds. I'm getting hair extensions on the 18th. Around our honeymoon, you had hair extensions. They were, oh, that's, they uh, were that very, was full, very, very full, very full. That was a very different energy. Your hair around our wedding was like a Viking queen, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's right. It was a whole lot of hair. You hated it. I didn't hate it. Just when I look back at pictures, I think, oh, that's a lot of hair. I wish you'd said something at the I time. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. You were... I'm very burpy. Because of whatever's going on with this stomach thing and this antibiotic. <laughs> I am a wreck. Oh, Sarah. I feel terrible. I know, This is very much like my mother. I know myself by having very high energy levels. And I just feel de- so depleted. I'm so sorry. Ugh. And the aftertaste of that bula is not great for me. Hello? Welcome to Beetlejuice. Hello? With Jeff Lloyd. What? Because everything's better with the Beatles. Yeah, it's just something a bit more, because it does sound a bit dead when you hear it, just doesn't intro. How about this then? Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. This is Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Yeah, we'll have it, we'll have it. It was worth it for that. Here's what I think I said in the first episode, and I remain unconvinced by whether that there's that big a crossover audience of people who want to hear what we've just heard over the past couple of minutes oh. and discussion about the Beatles. But we're, we're, we're in. We're going to do it for the whole run. There's uh, another four weeks left. We're committed. The centre of the Venn diagram isn't big enough, I don't think. Yeah. All right. So you discussed in extreme detail these sort of additional ventures is that the right way of describing it? Like different things that they all did with their money or business ventures in, or outside business ventures of the outside joint. of the Beatles. Yeah, you were describing how like they didn't think. You know, it was like, oh well, if this lasts three months, then this, or hey, if it's four years, and that George um, wanted to open a business. This is this is before they got very famous. It was like, oh, you know, if 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 we can sort of sustain this for four years, then I'd go on and do this. And what do you think you would have done? It's a really good question. I did a bit of hunting around to try and figure out what he would have done and and I didn't really get anywhere with it. What I thought was interesting with Ringo's answer about the hairdressers is how much of their background is in the scale of the ambition. In other words, if you went to Eton and Oxbridge and you think, God, what can I do with the rest of my life? You're probably not thinking, oh, I could open a shop. Whereas their horizon was a working class horizon. So Ringo's thinking, if you've got a bit of money, what do you do? Do you open a business? What does a business look like? Oh, it's a chain of hairdressers. Do you see what I mean? He's not Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I'll make these investments and I'll have a passive income like a posh person would. Is that why hairdressers? He would have just seen, oh, this seems like a viable business based on what his life... Like, he wasn't interested in hair. Well, that's what Ringo... And did Ringo want to just meet some girls? Well, he kind of said in the, uh, the next part of his answer is he'd like to be dressed up in whatever the hairdresser's garb was and just being convivial and saying hello to people in the hairdressers. He might just have been joking. He might have just had his hair cut and it was the first thing that came into his head. And then what about him opening that builders then? 
Bricky Builders. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> the lack of imagination in the name. That feels like something genuinely builders. that Gene would come up with. <laughs> like he names things, he'll get a like little 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 lizard, a toy lizard, and he'll be like, "What's the? What have you named it?" And he'll be like, "Lizard the lizard." And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, at cool. best, it's lizardy. Yeah, lizardy. Bricky Builders. What? Why did he? Um, with the restaurant that he opened in Atlanta. Why Atlanta of all places? Now listen, I'm interested in Atlanta. So I'm not shitting on Atlanta. I'm just wondering, do you know how it was that he ended up there of all the places? No, I probably need to do a bit more on that. I Nemo told me about it on Twitter, who is the fount of all knowledge. It oh, was wow. one that when I was doing my research, I'd missed it out. So I, this is a bit of a behind-the-scenes glimpse, I messaged Nemo and said, here's a bunch of Beatles business ventures that I've scribbled down. Can you think of any more? And he came back to me with that restaurant in Atlanta. I then Googled it and you see Ringo arriving at the opening party with Barbara and there's a bunch of rock and rollers there and he gets up on stage and performs. But I guess with these things, as ever with celebrity investments, somebody wheedles their way into their circle. Sure. Says, I've got a great idea. We can make a lot of money. It happens to be in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, how, How clear a sense do you have of some of the furniture that Ringo was. Didn't he have like a furniture design yes. company? Yeah, it was him and a guy called Robin Cruikshank. And honestly, you would think some of this furniture is genuinely cool. Oh, that was going to be my question. Was there anything that was even slightly like, look to at your that. taste? I'm not saying it would be to your taste. Oh. But think sort of late 60s, early 70s. Well, that's the late 60s aesthetic, but it's early 70s. Some of the furniture was genuinely... Sorry, you can tell the difference between a late 60s and an early 70s aesthetic? Really? No, I'm saying that if you looked at that, if you looked at that picture, which is some colourful chairs around a steel table, Mm. maybe you'd think that colourful design would evoke the 60s, but I happen to know that it was the 70s. That's what I mean. Some of it is is nice furniture. I'm a lady who enjoys wood. Mm. You're showing me shine. Yes, I don't think it would be to your taste, but if you You're were... much better than I am. You're much better at looking at something that isn't your taste but is still good taste. Whereas I just look at stuff and if it's not something I'd put in my home, I don't like it. If you had bought some of this furniture, would it I would be loaded now. It be, well, it wouldn't be loaded and it's not because of the Beatles connection particularly. That that helps a little bit, but most stuff that Beatles touched is valuable because the Beatles touched it. I think some of this furniture is thought of as genuinely good designer furniture from the period. Wow. Yeah. Who knew Ringo had it in him? I didn't. Well, I'm not sure. I wonder guy. if it was the other guy. Okay, yeah. okay, sure. Um, with all these different enterprises that they all had, how much do you think it was about making more money or like a workaholism? Like, staying busy with stuff. It varies. So when John and George actually become directors of this supermarket, John's best friend, Pete Shotton, from when he was a lad, who was kind of John's entourage, you know, people get famous, they have friends pretty much living with them on and off. There are too many people around. It's just a weird side effect of fame. But Pete Shotton was somebody from John's past who he kept very close really up until around the time he met Yoko and I guess if you're becoming a millionaire and your best friend is kind of knocking around it's like it's like I was saying before um famous people or rich people have constantly in their orbit 
have chances saying, actually, fancy investing in this. We could all get rich off of it. So I think with Pete Shotton and the supermarket, it was a bit of that. And also just a bit of John chucking his childhood best friend a bone, who was round a lot anyway. Um, And then the rest of it, really, that I talked about was post-Beatles and... That's that's interesting because you say, but they were all these very rich men. But they didn't feel rich at the time. Their money was all tied up in Apple. They'd lost all this money through Apple. Other people had got very rich. They didn't feel that they had. They were all suing each Why other. Why did they lose money? Because when they launched Apple, it was this idealistic, utopian, hippie company. And... It didn't function like a company. Nobody knew how to run a business and people just helped themselves to stuff. They were hemorrhaging money. And that's why they needed to get somebody in and it ended up being Alan Klein. But to transfer... Is he Jewish? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jewish. I can ask that. That's something I always worry about. When you make a joke... Oh, we'll never forget. I mean, when I did that, my, my famous, infamous example was when I was like first starting to gig over here and people just talk about judaism in the states much more a jew like myself will talk about being jewish in america much more than a jew in britain and i was hosting some gig and i the per, the next person coming up had a name like alan klein i mean just so so very jewish so i went okay guys coming up next is alan klein jew and the room went silent. <gasps> and then, like, you were there. I mean, you were there. And then at the interval, as they say, you were like, you cannot. First of all, generally, I would just dissuade you from shouting the word Jew into the microphone. But if you absolutely have to do it, then you must set up prior to doing that, that you yourself are Jewish. And I was like, oh. Anyway, Klein, business. So, So they're all kind of feeling skint or feeling like they might might go sure, broke. Okay, that makes sense. Um and and they need to turn things around. Paul is especially good at that. And then Ringo, I guess, out of necessity, because he didn't make the same kind of money out of songwriting as the others, that that deal he made with Thomas the Tank Engine, he did extremely well out of that. So pr- he probably had an eye on a business opportunity more than the others. But that stuff with Yoko and the cows is interesting. She was very savvy. And that was John kind of abdicating responsibility, turning over to her. Oh, my and she, God. You she, did a good... she could do that. Oh, I do. And then George's stuff with films was a passion that turned into a money spinner that then, then turned to, out to be financially ruinous because of his business partner. Oh, I didn't know that his film stuff turned out to be ruinous. So he did really, really well out of film. And he's credited with saving the British film industry in the 80s. But he had this business partner who did some shady investments and was fraudulent Uh, leading to george being by millionaire rock star standards kind of on his uppers towards the end of the 80s uppers means like running out of money or looking like he could run out of money and might have to sell the house and all that which then makes him more shall we say open-minded about doing the anthology oh but, so in a but, way, the yeah. anthology only happened because of that shady business guy. That's that's my that's my theory on sounds it. Sounds right. Yeah. I mean, I'd let you know. I don't have someone here vocalizing an opposing argument, but that sounds very right. Mm. Um, nineteen eighty is that the year that Lennon was shot? Yes. In nineteen seventy nine, 
Who had more money, Lennon or McCartney? It'd be Paul, I think, because he sold more records. He went out on tour and his business interests were being built up around that time, whereas John stopped working. He did this rock and roll album in the mid-70s and then famously, the story goes, he became a house husband and brought up Sean and baked bread. Not There's some truth in that, but it's not the entire story. So he's not earning. Yoko's going out and making these investments, so his fortune is growing, but it's, I'd say Paul's finances were in much ruder health. And some of the stuff with John was kind of obsessed with monitoring Paul's solo career as well. Sure. I think it would, you know, if Paul had a hit record or if Paul was selling out venues, that would get under his skin. Of course. He'd send out an assistant to buy Paul's latest albums and give them a listen. He'd sometimes make barbed remarks about them. Was there anything that he had to concede was just excellent? Yeah, every now and again. So do you know the song Coming Up? How does it go? Mm, Sort of a disco song. Coming up, that one. Uh, He he really liked that. In the press interviews, it's quite interesting. You read John and George talking about Paul's albums and they could be quite dismissive, but then they'd pick out tracks that you'd be quite surprised by. It would show that they'd really listen to these records and they'd say, yeah, I don't like it, but um, I really like this one particular track. And do you think that I don't like it, but was a thing they had to do based on... Do you, do you think that the dislike... This is what I'm trying to say. Do you think that the dislike was somehow more sincere or less than sincere than what they actually liked? They just sort of think it was good, but had to find a critical way of complimenting it. Probably like the minimum possible version of sincere. They're not going to go over the top. but right. they, um, Nor would either of them say something nice for the sake of it. I think Paul... He'd say something that sounded positive... But he'd find a way of concealing a jig that dig that John or George could take personally whilst the journalist not being aware. Whereas with the other two, I think it was a bit the other way around. Oh, my God. That does make Paul sound like a, the, the bad person. That's a terrible trait. <sighs> I, yeah, I mean, it's... We know we sort of understand where he was coming from, but it's just a disgusting way to be. I hate that. But he wants to be liked. He wants the public to like him. And he feels really hurt by these guys. and And they have beat him up in the press he feels or whatever and he's trying to land a blow but at the same time as trying as being likable whereas they weren't really worrying about being likable at the same time you went from rocky raccoon Mm. to rocky the film starring sylvester stallone Mm. do you remember that there was a rocky remake and we went to see it yes it was good how did i convince you to see that film based on your sort of aversion to anything connected to sport. Even people say you'll enjoy this if you don't like sport. I think I have a vague nostalgic connection to watching the Rocky films when I was a kid. And that film had been so well-reviewed. I was quite curious to see, because it wasn't, Sylvester Stallone wasn't, it was a young guy, wasn't it? it? And he was the mentor. Was it called Creed? Creed, your yeah. brother had seen it and said it was good. Yeah, some, somebody had convinced me. I was just because like one of the great disappointments for me this past year is that you've refused to watch the Michael Jordan documentary and all anyone has said about it. And I really want to watch that because I lived in Chicago when the Bulls were having that run of wins and I want to watch it so bad. And you just, you absolutely refuse, even though everyone's thing about it is, oh my God, this is one of the great lockdown watches and you do not need to be into sport. 
And you just refused. And I thought, maybe I could use whatever I did to convince him to go see Creed to, to watch this. But it's not going to happen because there's no nostalgia. I've been, sc- I've been scarred too many times with people saying, it's with about what? sport, but it's not about... I don't know. I feel like loads of films and stuff, people have said, yeah, it is about sport, but it's not really. And then there's just too many scenes of games or people throwing things or people hitting things or people running. And it just gets so bored so quickly. I think like I think of you as this really thoughtful person. Mm consider not thought i mean you are thoughtful but like thinking but but that you've really thought through your opinions and your shit to do with sport like stuff that relates to sport it's like a real hole in your otherwise very considered approach to things i read something the other day i can't remember what it is now but it was george harrison talking about how he felt about sports and athletics and it felt very similar to to me i felt a real kinship he despised it or any kind of yeah it's discussion not neutral. of it no it's it, not neutral no. it's like it's a personal like the michael jordan documentary and the fact that people like it is and the fact that i would like to watch it is a personal attack on you <laughs> but then he really got into formula one which is sport of a kind that they all really sort of hated it and then they all became more open to it as they got older they were really excited to meet muhammad ali well, but I mean, he had a lot going on, and and just such a major like cultural a figure. But I wonder if they figure. watched boxing then. Ringo maybe Ugh. watched boxing. I just, I, 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 I need to be convinced that there isn't something wrong with people who watch boxing. Oh, there's another one of my big opinions. <laughs> Go on. I think watching someone get beat up is really fucked up. There it is. I feel like boxing fans aren't one thing. They might. I, I, I don't know much about boxing fans. I just know that I think all I know about boxing is that the, I, as I understand it, the matches are take such a horrible toll on the boxers that you only do it a few times a year. It's not like playing a basketball game or a football game or whatever. And I just think watching someone do a thing where they're trying to stay kind. It feels like some some bullshit Roman, let's throw them in the ring and see if they can survive when the tiger comes after them. And it's like, oh no, I'm not. It's like a bullfight, watching a bull get killed. It's just crazy shit. But people talk about the beauty in it and about how it's almost like ballet. I, I li- don't know. I like the no. bit, do you like the bit when they cuddle each other? No, I because I feel like I'm watching. It's it's part of my thing. Why like I would never watch a a, a marathon again because these people are being pushed to such an extreme mm. limit, and I just I feel like you're, you. I was going to say I feel like it's like watching people fight. Why would I want to watch people? And it is. It's watching people fight. And just because there's like an art to it, which I I understand that people train and train and train, and there there is this. It's not like a street fight. But why would I watch something where someone's lips splits open and they're trying to stand up because they're about to collapse? Do you think it's weird that there's this glamorous association with it as well? So on these nights of these big fights where the tickets cost a fortune, you'll get movie stars and huge celebrities all dressed up going as if well, it's a fashion show. I do, but you get that at all sporting events, don't you? Not dressed up like that. I feel it's almost like the, the those big landmark boxing matches that they're almost treated as if they're film premieres yeah, I and think stuff they're it's really like, events 
it's like my wish is that in another couple hundred years, people look back on this and being like, what the fuck was those people's problems? The way that we would look back on like public studies. Noble. Let me noble, say this. Noble is a Let word people use this. about boxing. Noble? Yeah. No, people use the word noble about the art of, the, the, the sport of boxing. How is it noble? I don't know. I've just heard it said. I feel like if you are someone who in 2021 is like, hmm. Let me watch some boxing. You are the person who would have attended a public hanging. (laughs) But the person at the public hanging hasn't got a choice in the matter. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Um, You are, what I'm trying to say is you are comfortable with, it doesn't disturb you to watch violence and what the fuck is broken in you that you feel that way. I can't watch people beat each other up. Well, I can't either, but so many people do. And so I I don't know what to tell you about that. People are weird. Yeah, I I feel like there's something missing. In, I'd I'd like to understand it. Better. Yeah, here's what I'd I like need. To understand here's what it I need. Here's what I need. I need, and this is not great. If there's like a a major writer who's really into his or her, but it might be a his boxing. I would like them to talk me through what I have wrong. But I think I would really need it to be somebody who. I'll finish the sentence. It's not great. Who I just felt no question they were smarter than I am. By the way, I think a lot of people are smarter than I am, but I think a lot of people are dumber than I am as well. So I would just need it to be like, oh, you're such and such an amazing person. You're clearly smarter than I am. So just what am I missing here? Because I think it's disgusting. And what about wrestling? Wrestling. No one's taking wrestling seriously, really. The way that some people will take boxing seriously is what I think. Do you like it when our son asks us to wrestle? Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, of all the aliases of all the four Beatles, which was your favourite? I always liked Dr. Winston O'Boogie. I also liked Percy Thrill's Thrillington, which is one of Paul's. He put out an instrumental version of the album Ram, like an orchestral version under the name Percy Thrill's Thrillington. That, that, that's fun. Did you like any of them? You were, they were going, you were going through them so quickly I couldn't, again, so dense. What Not about- criticizing. I mean, I'm a little bit because of the weekend that we had, but um, <laughs> but um, it was it was what was for me as a listener. It was the volume that was. That's what I was going for. Interesting. That's what rather I was going than for. really being able to pay attention to a favorite. Um, do you have any thoughts on what your own alias would be? Before now, I've used the alias <laughs> Uncle Fluff Glitter. Have you really? Well, it's the thing I used to talk about on the radio. The idea was there was this legendary DJ in this country called Alan Freeman, a radio DJ whose catchphrase was "Not half." And I, I, it was what I like, not half. Oh, not half. Do I like it? Not half. Oh. You know that was one of his things, and he died. And I thought it was a shame that this DJ name died with him. He was called Alan Fluff Freeman, and I thought I should inherit it. Uh-huh. And then, of course, with Gary Glitter. I felt sorry for the rest of the glitter band. I mean, <gasps> you know, they're the least of the problem. Like, what there, he, there are other he people. Masturbate when he shouldn't be. Oh, children. Yeah, well, oh. yeah. So I thought, what if I was to try and reclaim the name glitter and give it a positive connotation? That's so I put funny. fluff and glitter together and came up with fluff glitter, and then just to make it even more friendly, I put uncle in front of it. Uncle fluff glitter. <laughs> That's funny, but I wouldn't name a dog that either. What about this for a pseudonym? Olympus bicep. No. No. Um, you were talking about the, 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 the trumpet was the first ever instrument that Paul ever bought, right? Like his dad bought it. His dad was in a jazz band called Jim Max Big Band or Jim Max Band. And he bought Paul a trumpet 
for his birthday. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about exactly which birthday. Paul always says in interviews it's 14th. Mark Lewison... Oh, I heard. Um, ...is, is convinced so it must have been his 13th and Paul is misremembering. What do you think that feels like? So I don't trust my own memory. And if somebody was to go through my life forensically and say this happened on this day, this is where you were, This, I'd, I'd be glad of it. Whereas I think it really can get the backs up of people who have books written about them. I can see that. It's very, you know, it's such a strange thing to even sort of think about trying to relate to, but mm. I, I can do the leap of understanding why that would be destabilizing. You don't worry about my memory and what it might mean for my cognitive function in old age, do you? No, think about us last night with you having to try to explain to me what had happened on the penultimate episode of Line of Duty. Also, when we, it, no, it's just, it's different skills. I don't. I but- done this to my memory. I think it is years of depression have, have depression. ruined my memory. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. You should keep that in. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, feature where I steal your questions from the questions that you asked the person that you interviewed. What's your favorite Fontana album co- cover? I think I would go with um, Rubber Soul as well. I hate it. You hate it? No, but it's like I, it's not. My, it's too done. Well, it, but it wasn't. This no, is the point. Done. It was it's invented. It was invented for them. I didn't mean done. That was I misspoke. Yeah. It's too much. Yeah. I mean, if you would say it looks amazing. Yes. But if I was gonna like, if it was like Sarah, you're getting something printed out for an invitation, I wouldn't be like, ooh, the rubber sole. Oh no, no, me either. If it was, if it, if it was that, I'd want to use. Um, I don't know the font on the white album, which is probably just Helvetica or something. In fact, I wonder what that font is. I'm going to Google it now. But this comes back to Ringo's furniture, doesn't it? There's a difference between the thing you would have yourself and... It was Helvetica. Look at that. Great. There's a great documentary about Helvetica. Did you ever see it? No. It's it's genuinely brilliant. Great. I'll watch that sometime. Okay. Um, do you agree with Joe that John is the Beatle most likely to gift a book? I think so, yeah. Which Beatles book that you own feels most precious to you? The um, House is Burning. As oh, Jean, what do you take? Which Beatles book do you take? It's that Ringo postcards from the boys, the reproductions of all the postcards, not just the one that was in the regular bookshops, but the the special one. It's really, it's a thing of beauty. When you were playing the audio of them laughing while they recorded no your reply. face, yeah. the phrase your face, do you have memories of being on the radio and being completely, in a way that was actually problematic, unable in terms of your ability to control yourself because you were laughing too hard at something? Yes. There's, there's one that um, people who used to listen to the breakfast show I did with Pete always remember. We used to do a feature called Mummy, Am I Ugly? where people would send in a picture of themselves and this guy sent in a picture of his face and <coughs> Pete could not control himself laughing at this guy's face mm-hmm. and kept saying he looked like a sausage and <laughs> calling him Sausage Man. And the way that he was laughing so uncontrollably led to me laughing uncontrollably and, and everybody and the whole thing just broke down. Escalated. But I missed that. I can't remember the last time I was laughing uncontrollably. When did I laugh uncontrollably very recently? Oh, Jean, there was a farting thing that happened. Mm. I laughed really hard recently at my friend who sort of has his like done, tried to do a lot of charity work since the pandemic hit and signed herself up to a bunch of stuff. And basically she got like assigned a refugee from Hong Kong. She now has to show around Hackney. And when she was telling me about it, I really, the idea that this woman who has two small children at a job 
is now going to be showing a refugee around hacking. Because she didn't realize that was quite what she was She didn't realize what she was signing up for. And it was also this idea of someone who's like a real do-gooder. You know, she is saving the planet. She is a vegan. She just does good. She was raised to do good. And now she's wound up. Hoist by her own petard. Hoisted by her own petard. It really does feel like it could be a Seinfeld or a Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, okay, this leads me to um, my final question. What would you most want to guest star on? The Simpsons, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Great British Bake Off, or Dramatic Succession? Succession the least. You don't you don't want to do like a small, dramatic, dark, amazing role with some of those actors. Beyond my ability. This is all beyond your ability, but with the Simpsons though, if that you, one might not be beyond your ability. If if you're just doing voice, you can do a gajillion takes and and they can splice a good one together. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about what you're doing with your hands or and you're a, you're a voice person. Yeah. Kirby enthusiasm I love but I don't think I'd be good on it. In a way maybe it would be the bake off because I don't think I am some you you are somebody who the day someone has the idea to put you on a show where you are just being yourself doing something is is I'm so crazy. You are somebody who is made for reality TV. That's so terrible. Like if you went on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, for example, or Big Brother or something like that, you would either become the most beloved or the most hated person mm. in the country. It, it, I mean, it just, you people would have a very, very strong reaction to you, entirely depending on what happened and how it was edited. I think like a lot of people think that about either themselves or their spouses. No, it, no, I'm telling, you, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you, and it's not entirely flattering. No, oh, because, I don't feel... Because when I say that people could... You could become the most hated woman in Britain. Right. I genuinely mean that. I'd be that. talking about how disgusting boxing is or all these things. Yeah, you'd have your strong opinions. opinions you, to form alliances with other people on I the show, you would them. say sort of terrible things about yeah. other people. No, you'd try and draw that out of other people. I'd be like, let's, let's bitch about yeah. so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely would be. But at the same time... Oh, my time, God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What? You know what I did the other day that was terrible? What? <laughs> I was getting together with a friend. A third friend was supposed to join us and cancelled, to say last minute. It wasn't quite last minute, but it was quasi last minute. The The, the reason for cancelling, I think, was extremely legit. So I get together just with the one other friend that night. And I said, and I always say about myself, I'm not a shit stirrer. I'm a gossip, but I don't shit stir. Well, lo and behold, I was like, hey, um, so are you annoyed about so-and-so cancelling? <laughs> kind of asshole i was so ashamed of myself and she went the other friend went no 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 not at all because i do think and then we then then discussed the legitimacy of her reason for canceling but you caught yourself in the moment but i caught i was like oh you always say that you're not a shitster and look at you and it was what what it was was i wanted to have a little something but i caught my it was really me trying to connecting trying to connect through complaining and i was Shamed of myself. Well, I, th- I think that is why you would be so brilliant on one of those shows, Thank you. and and it's why I would be so bad on one of those shows. I would be the person people forget they were even on it because I'm just quiet most yeah. of the time. That being said, I think I would choose Bake Off. Okay, not because I'm a good baker. It's because I think if I went on Bake Off, 
I'd be more likely to like get some work off radio too. Oh, totally. All right. Well, um, did you like you? You always just say that you like these people, but Joe was great, wasn't he? Yes, but, but you I have did, liked. But him. I did probably yeah. like Joe. There was but, one person I didn't like. <gasps> I am a shitster. <laughs> I loved uh, I loved talking to Joe and this longer conversation I think is even more enjoyable you'll like it this is Joe Wisby from the Beatles Books podcast Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd limitless undying love for the band who did it all Hello Jeff how are you I I'm great and I'm so excited to talk to you I'm sitting here and I'm staring at the moment of I would say four shelves each about a meter and a half in length groaning with Beetle books, but th- this is a drop in the ocean compared to you. H- how many books do you have at this point, and how much room do they take up in your house? Well, um, I'm looking at around. So I've been asked this question quite a lot since I've started doing the the, the podcast, and I think I'm on a, around four fifty at the moment. Um, which is, uh, they say that there's been over a thousand ever published, um, which obviously. I've not got, I'm not quite, quite got to that particular landmark yet, but yeah, four, oh, some of the books aren't entirely Beatle uh, focused, but most of them have got certainly some kind of Beatle connection. So yeah, around four fifty. How do you organise them? Because asking someone how, how they organise the CD collection or record collection can open up a whole can of worms. What about the books? Because I'm looking at mine, and there is a system, but even I have forgotten what it is at this point. It definitely goes Beatle, and then. Uh, has individual solo in the order John Paul George and Ringo like we all say them but then in the Beatles books themselves the the order that I've put them in I've I've kind of forgotten what it is what what system do you use well I tend to use not a million miles from what from what you've just said then so yeah um, biographies solo biographies insider books um, which is quite uh, there's more of those than you would uh, realize believe me uh books about um like, like reference books so from the mark lewis from recording sessions downwards uh and then yes uh solo books the ringo shelf is still quite uh sparse unfortunately there's a there's a gap in the market there if anyone's listening <laughs> and wants to write a ringo book um and then uh people that were around the beatles so kind of 60s based books uh some kind of swinging london uh based uh, stories, biographies, etc. Uh, so yeah, I try and group them together. But occasionally, I'll get a book like the Be- uh, poetry inspired by the Beatles, which I've got behind me now. Um, and I'm thinking, where's that going to go? So there is just like kind of a, an odds and ends shelf or three uh, with just some random uh, conspiracy theory books. There's a few of those. I, I clump those together. Um, so yeah, I, I try and organise them, but occasionally you'll just get an outlier that will just arrive, and I'm like, "What am I going to do with you?" And, and, and how do you deal with outsized books? Well, uh, I, I'm I'm blessed with a decent coffee table, okay. uh, so it, <laughs> it, it, it has a storage space underneath which um, the um, the lady of the house lets me have that section. Uh, there's a few other bits and bobs under there, but yeah, anthologies under there. Um, not a book for reading on the toilet, as I'm sure most <laughs> listeners will know, the Beatles Anthology book. Uh, so, yeah, that lives under the coffee table. I queued up outside Waterstones in Piccadilly at midnight to get my copy. Wow. And um, the, the, my big issue with it is just how unreadable it is, because it's a beautiful coffee table book. 
but it's almost impossible to to sit down and read as a book it's 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 got incredible illustrations a lot of the text is over the top of pictures um and mm. the stories in it um are are fantastic and often it's a perspective that they give on things that they haven't given anywhere else but it's so unwieldy like why wouldn't they at this point put it out also as a readable hardback or paperback well, it's interesting you say that because I, for a episode of my podcast, which as we're talking now hasn't been released, I spoke to uh, John Mitchinson, who um, is a co-host of the Backlisted podcast, which uh, is quite well known. It deals with kind of old old books, and he worked for Cassell, which was the publisher of the Beatles anthology book, and that was sort of a question that I I put to him. He had a lot of dealings with Neil Aspinall, uh, who kind of oversaw that that project, and I think it was. I think it was always going to be that kind of book of a huge a book that would almost, but like the Beatles would dominate a room when they walked into it. That book sort of dominates a, a coffee table or, or you know or, or any room that it's in. I think to kind of pricey it down into a paperback version, I think sort of defeats the object of of, of the beauty of having this book with these you know these wonderful, mostly unseen pictures. Um, but yeah, well, I, I, I know what you mean. I think they slightly missed a window of opportunity to to make it into a into just a more basic paperback or like a normal history. But but hey, you know that's the Beatles. They they kind of they do unto themselves, as they say. Now now you're younger than I am. You're are you still in your thirties, early forties? I'm thirty seven. Right. So you're you're still in your thirties. Um, what was Ground Zero for you? What was the first book? Uh, the first book was so I, I used to go um, and see my dad every Saturday. My parents were and still are divorced when I was a, a kid, and he took me to the local bookshop in uh, Brentwood in Essex, where I'm from, uh, and he bought me um, like a basic kind of picture book, I suppose you'd say, of the Beatles story. But then that was when I was about ten. But when I got to twelve. He then uh, handed down to me the uh, Beatles Hunter Davis, which you are uh, official biography in your hands now. Yes. So he he gave me his original. I say gave me. I think he lent me this book in 1995, and uh, I still haven't returned it to him. Um, uh, the original Hunter Davis authorized biography, which I think is a wonderful book and should be on everyone's bookshelves. Uh, I think essentially almost every Beatles book that's come out since that. Uh, take something from that, the beats of the story that Hunter tells in his in his authorised biography, I think you can see in almost every other Beatle book. Yeah, and it's almost become, I think possibly because of comments John Lennon made about it, uh, people were a, a bit sniffy about it for a long time. Uh, although I've said a couple of times recently, I've gone back to it a lot whilst doing this radio programme. And it's mm. so good and so insightful about them on a personal level and the songwriting process in in a in a kind of he's documenting them as they're writing and, and sometimes recording and and that doesn't exist really anywhere else it's great to read and and he's a he's a fantastic writer and and also there's that thing of if you look at some of the early parts of the book where it will say so john was at school with pete shotton and len gary and then this is where this is his house with like mimi now now we all know that information but at the time, nobody knew who Pete Shotton, for instance, was. Nobody knew about Aunt Mimi necessarily. 
he he collated together all of that information that we all now take for granted to an incredibly high level of journalistic research. And he did it in like 18 months. I think he, he only got the okay in the end of 66, start of 67. So he, he, he prepared this, this amazing text of research and he made it engaging. And he, you know, and he, he revealed a little bit about the, their relationships between the four of them. So it, it's no mean feat. So if, if you're doing like, if somebody's listening to this and prior to hearing this program, they're a bit indifferent about the Beatles and something about this has, has wet their appetite. Like what, what are the basics? Cause as a fan, you think, okay, the Beatles anthology is the one where they tell their own story. Then you've got the Michael Brown book love yeah. me do which is, is he, he gets to spend time with them early on he gets a certain type of access hunter davis book you mentioned anything with mark lewison's name on it who is their you know gold standard biographer and yeah. arguably i would always say peter doggett's you never give me your money although i've read recently that a few people sort of Taken umbrage against that in the years since it's written, uh, since it's written, which I don't, you know, I've not been back to it for a long time, but I remember it being pretty, uh, yeah, acclaimed at the time. Where else do we go with the basic library? And is there anything from that list that should be knocked out? Uh, well, I mean, people take umbrage, unfortunately, to anything, it's almost impossible, you know, you, it, as we all know. Um, but yeah, I mean, so you've got something like Shout by Philip Norman, which was, as I'm sure you'll remember, was a humongously selling Beatles biography uh, that came out in March of 1981, just a few months after John was killed. I think that certainly helped in propelling it to the top of the bestseller list. It's the thrillingly written book, but again, some listeners might know Philip Norman had some bizarre jealousy around Paul McCartney. So essentially almost entirely writes Paul McCartney out of the Beatles story, um, which is a bit like writing Jesus out, out, out of <laughs> Bible. You know, it, it, you can't really do that. But it is still, um, uh, you know, it's still quite an exciting book to read. It is certainly full of passion. Uh, then Although Paul got, McCartney gave that great quote, which was, uh, shout is shite. Shite, yeah. And uh, Norma <laughs> Phillips rather than Philip Norman was the author. Uh, you've got um, Revolution in the Head, Ian MacDonald. Of course, yeah. That, I, 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 that was a, a glaring omission on my list, wasn't it? Yeah. Which was the perfect mid 90s book, comes out in 94. So it ties in both with the explosion of guitar music in the UK and with the emergence of things like Mojo magazine, where people of a certain age, uh, I'm looking squarely self jeff now um want to find out a bit more about the musical side of things hunter's book doesn't really look at the music hunter's book is essentially and then they did revolver philip norman's book is the kind of the um slightly more tabloid way of looking at things revolution in the head uses the work of mark lewis in recording sessions and turns it into a, a really fascinating look at how and almost why they recorded the music and it's quite He's spiky not... in parts as well yeah. it's um you know yeah. I, I remember at that time like Britpop, so many bands were referenced in the beatles and and you know earlier indie alternative bands and and yet there was a little p- bit of pushback against them in the early 90s and and a feel that he walk, walks that line of not being you know too reverential from that perspective although you know from my perspective you can't you can't be too reverential of of the music i mean he's quite pro mccartney in in that book as well i think part of the the increase in paul's reputation which you saw 
kind of late 90s into 2000 part of it comes from people looking at that book and realizing that you know he he's he, he steered the ship quite quite heavily through especially after about 966 um revolution head yeah pete doggett's book is uh the problem with that is is that it, it covers an awful lot of time um it starts in you know 1967 goes up to about 2010 it's difficult to cover you know so much happened with the beatles even after they they broke up it's difficult to uh, to look at that you've got um uh you've got something like the lenin remembers that interview the rolling stone interview that's a fascinating i mean okay it's it, it, it's just that one interview and you can endlessly pick holes in what john was feeling that day but you know reading it and of course listening to it you know we're all gripped by what he was saying and and how he was saying it i think that does need to be on um most shelves i would really recommend for quite an interesting um insider book the alan alan williams who was their first manager he wrote a book in the mid 70s called the man who gave the beatles away uh, which you think might be just some kind of bitter, angry rant at the Beatles, but it's a brilliant window, a brilliant look at pre-fame Liverpool Beatles, which until Mark Lewis's tune in, wasn't that well covered in a lot of books, that kind of cavern, you know, even pre-Hamburg um, time. And it's hilariously funny. Um, alas, out of print now, so you might need to have a scrape through an eBay barrel or two to find it. But uh, the Alan Williams book is, is definitely worth a look. Let's talk about Mark Lewison, who is their biographer. As I said before, he's sort of a gold standard mm. biographer. I, I struggle to think of any other subject where you know the the biographer and the uh, the, the the life of the biographer and the you know, any in, any interview with Mark Lewison that pops up on a Beatles podcast, the downloads you know saw fans are eager to know his every move. What is the latest thing he found out? He published the first volume of his comprehensive Beatles biography uh, at this stage, what are we, like six, seven years ago, something like that. About that, yeah. Uh, and it goes up to when they recorded the first LP. Who knows when the second two parts uh, will come out. We're all sort of balancing impatience over that with just wanting him to do the best possible job. I had it in my head that when these books were finally published, I would be able to clear the decks and you know just have his books in the anthology but in- increasingly i am coming to understand that mark lewison's way of telling the story which is incredibly evidence based and going through the paper trails and making sure that everything is verified and research is is just sort of one way of enjoying the story you know i i'm i'm lucky enough i've i've met mark several times and uh, spoken to him at length about stuff and you know, he's always was always very he's always been very kind and willing with his time. He was quite helpful in suggesting ideas for the the podcast that I do, um, and will perhaps one day maybe even grace me with his presence. But hey, he's a busy man, so I, I don't push too hard down that particular road. Um, I mean, yeah, as you say, his his way of writing is one is one way of looking at it, and it's going through endless paper mountains of stuff to work out where they were and interviewing people that maybe weren't comfortable about coming out to, to, you know, not just the same old, you know, 10 interviewers that, that you get of people that appear on every Beatles program and appear in every Beatles book. Uh, You know, I I think for me personally, I think we're lucky to have him. Oh yeah. I think he's, I think he's the right man to do that kind of the story. But as you say, 
there's so many different ways of looking at the Beatles. You can, is that there's definitely room for other, you know, biographers even uh, around him. He certainly dominates the landscape and he must be acutely aware of that. Um, and that must be a huge um, weight on his shoulders that, as you say, we're all, you know, if, if we're waiting for a podcast interview to drop, let alone what happens in the actual <laughs> book, actually. Um, and that must be difficult. And there are, there are there are dissenting voices about Mark and there are dissenting voices about all the authors and that that's difficult as well. And that a lot of those are well-founded. Um, but yeah, I think we're lucky to have someone that can tell that story in that way. That's just my view. I can't remember who said it. I think it was the guys on the Nothing Is Real podcast, but I heard somebody say all the luck and coincidence and good fortune in the Beatles story. They got the producer they deserved in George Martin. You know, they they got the manager they deserved to signed in in, in in the first place. A guy who loved them in Brian Epstein, and now yeah. they've ended up with the biographer they deserve in Mark Lewis. And I think it's the perfect way to think about him. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. He's, you know, I think we're we're lucky to have him, and let's hope he stays fit and well and gets these books out. Is is there anyone from their orbit who? I mean, there's a there's a couple that spring immediately to mind who didn't tell the story that you would have loved to have either done so, or you're still holding out hope for. Uh, well, I mean, obviously Jane Asher is an obvious one. Um, she, whether or not she's going to speak to Mark for her for his book, I, I I'd be very surprised, and I think. In a way, it's quite nice that she hasn't spoken. It's That's really classy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she, you know, she could, you know, she could entirely milk that story for. She could have done the last thirty years. Um, it would have been good to have heard Neil Aspinall's uh, insight. Um, again, he he does feature in Mark Lewis's tune in, but of course, he passed away after maybe one or two interviews when it should have been fifty interviews. Um, so yeah, they're they're the two kind of glaring omissions. Um, but all my, I mean, you know, when you've got the cutting edge, which is Leslie Cavendish's book, who was the Beatles hairdresser, then you know that there's there's not much else out there to come. Yeah, I, I'm I'm looking at that. There it is. <laughs> I interviewed him. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. the The other one is um, there's a guy called Kevin Harrington who, if you watch the rooftop concert, he's squatting down, holding up the cue cards for. John Lennon, who would forget the lyrics, and and he was kind of assistant to the Beatles' assistant Mal Evans for a while. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's only an ebook, but I mean, there's, there's as you say, there's stuff in there which justified the three ninety nine or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I've seen that as well. That's that's like the kid on the roof or something. It's called he, the redhead it? on the roof. Yeah, who's the redhead red on the, the roof? roof. That's yeah. Right, yeah, there's some yeah. good photos, and there's a, there's there's an anecdote about the day that George leaves the Beatles in the Twickenham sessions where um, Kevin gets a lift back to London from Paul in, I think it's his Aston Martin, but I'm I'm not sure. Uh, But Paul wants to stop round at John's house on the way and then sends him off for 20 minutes. So, you know, just that little detail, just knowing that is, is, uh, is enough. Um, What about Mal Evans, who who was there, Rody? There's there's always rumours swirling that Mal's diaries could come out and john even kind of gave him his blessing to do a book from what i know about mal evans and and he is beloved like i think all beatles fans just love him i Mm. I don't think we're looking at a samuel peeps here are we no i mean yeah that's one of those things that's been around for so many years i've had i've had some people actually get in touch with me since i've been doing the the podcast um to say oh have you heard this about mal evans or i know someone that knows his daughter or there's always you know it's the the swirl of mystery around his 
his book um, is maybe slightly exaggerated, a bit like Carnival of Light might slightly exaggerate <laughs> what insight there was. But hey, he, you know, he was there um, through for the whole story, really, uh, and and continued friendships with them all after they broke up, which is always interesting. Uh, I, I imagine at some point his family might, you know, err on the side of, of releasing something, but we'll have to wait and see. I've asked you to pick a song um, which I know isn't a pleasant task, but uh, which, which one have you gone for and why? Well, I've picked uh, Things We Said Today, and it's such a brilliant, dramatic, almost dark song um, that appears on this pop album based on a film where they're running around with Wilfred Bramble. I, you know, I think it's a, a wonderful, powerful, brilliant song. I'll play that in a second. Before I do, some Beatles questions. Paperback writer or The Word? Paperback writer for the backing vocals. Best font on a Beatles album cover? Rubber Soul. Which was designed by? Rebecca Front's dad. Yes, yes. Which Beatle would be most likely to give you a book as a gift? I think John. If you personally could own either John Lennon's boyhood copy of Alice in Wonderland or Paul McCartney's uh, copy of the Observer Book of British Birds, which would you have? I'd probably go for John's because I imagine the Paul's book would be more well-thumbed. Which Beatle do you think has read the most books about the Beatles? I think maybe Paul, even though he wouldn't like to admit it. Divide the Beatles into bookmark, page earmarkers, or just remembering which page they were on. Who f- who fits into which category? Paul was a firm bookmark man, and it's the same bookmark he's had since he was a child. Uh, I imagine Ringo falls down the page just for ease. John just knows or probably forgets where he is and forgets what book he's reading. Um, and George has probably got some kind of uh, spiritual uh, kind of mind thing where he knows the exact word that he was on when he finished and went to bed. Which Beatle would be best and worst at returning a library book on time? John would forget where the library was because he was so <laughs> kind of off on his own journey and end up taking a book back somewhere entirely. Um, and Paul would know the exact time and date and the name of the uh, member of staff that checked it out. Finally, your library of Beatle books is on fire. Which one do you save? I would save the anthology because it would be um, it would take longer to burn. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Joe, it's a real treat to get to talk to you. Um, Before you go and before you're drowned out by the A Day in the Life Orchestra, tell us why are we still talking about this band? Uh, Those of us who weren't born when they were together and here we are years and years, more than 50 years after they broke up, why are we still talking about them? Because they offer a little bit of hope, a little bit of light and a lot of happiness. And I think especially at the moment, uh, that's what we we really need. Um... 